You know, there's all sorts of pain in the world. There's emotional pain, there's physical pain, spiritual pain. Nonetheless, what do we do when we hurt? What do we do with our pain? Well, the Bible tells us that we have a Savior who has suffered in every way and yet was found without sin. And it encourages us that when we hurt and when we suffer and when we're going through it, we're to go to Him with that because He understands and He longs for us to bring our needs to Him. You know, I'm standing at the very place that represents that identity. It's called Golgotha, the place of the skull, and it was here in this vicinity that Christ was crucified for our sins. You know, this is a strange place to bring up the idea of grace, but there may be no greater understanding of grace than at this place right here. Grace is unmerited favor. There's a cliche that I use oftentimes that He took our place and we get His place. He took our punishment and we get His blessing or benefit. And that really would be the place that I would try to bring you to today is that this is the place of grace. The best way to appreciate that is to live with the fact that you and I don't need to suffer and hurt and be ashamed because Christ went through all of that for us. We now have the place of honor because He took our place of shame. should have been handed the notes on the way in, and if you'll grab those while I welcome all of our services into um, the beginning here, uh, Highlands Ranch, Castle Rock, Lone Tree, and Lakewood, and then those who are live streaming us right now, I want to say welcome, glad that you are all a part of the greater JFC family, and then if you happen to be listening to this later on, maybe it's a CD, maybe it is through, well, however, somebody invited you to hear it, gave it to you. We are just glad you are a part of the family of God. Um, here's what we're doing. Our series is called Prayer, Pain, and Power, and it's our Easter series. We started it last week. We took those three ideas from the Passion. Now, if you're unfamiliar with what the Passion is, the Passion is the title that the church has given to the last weekend of Jesus' life here on the earth. We take the word Passion and we use it for the idea that the death, burial, and resurrection is called the Passion. And there were three things that happened during the Passion that we are focusing on. Jesus prayed a significant prayer that we talked about last week where he said, Lord, if it's possible to take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. This week we're going to talk about pain and why Christ suffered and why he went through what he went through. And then next week, we're going to talk about power. And let me just say, if you're a believer, everything that we believe hinges on next week being true. We believe that next week is the most significant event in the history of the universe. And so we are going to have some fun talking about power. Want to encourage you, make sure, get your tickets for that. Tickets are free. You can have as many as you'd like to invite folks um, but make sure that you grab one. It will help us to make sure that we spread out equally all of our services and that we have enough chairs to accommodate everybody. In your notes, the first scripture that I have is Psalms 85, 10, and 11. Now, let me just say right off the bat, uh, the Old Testament has very little to say other than prophetically about the uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, although prophetically it has a lot to say about it. But I'm going to use this scripture because I feel like it's a scripture from the Old Testament that very easily and very well explains God's purpose and plan for Jesus. So find it here in your notes. Let me read it to you, and then I'll try to teach you a little bit here. It begins, love and truth have met together. Let me just stop and ask this question. How many of you believe that God is all love? Believe that? How many of you believe that God is all truth? So is it possible that in one statement, God can be more than one thing? He is all love, but he is all truth. It goes on to say, and if you look at this, it's really interesting, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Again, how many of you believe that God is righteous? But how many of you believe that God is peace? He's all of those things, isn't he? Well, here then becomes what we have to teach theologically when it comes to pain and why Jesus went through pain. This scripture teaches that God is truth and peace. He is righteousness and he is love. It is interesting to bring together the idea theologically that while he is all love, 
He is also all holy. And because he's holy, something had to satisfy his holiness when it came to our sin. Now, let me, in a nutshell, try to explain this to you and see if it makes sense. When God created mankind, he created us in order to enjoy fellowship with him more than anything else. His reason for creating you is to know you and for you to know him. Just bottom line. Now, he put you on this earth. Each of you have a special reason why God has you here. But the common denominator for all of our existence comes down to one thing. God created you to know him and to be known by him. But like, if, if this doesn't make sense to you, I don't know that anything else I'm going to say today is. In order for it to be legitimate, in order for us to really love him, he couldn't create robots he has to create people who have the freedom to love him or reject him. Yes or no? It's not real love unless we can reject him. I mean, if you're married to somebody and the only reason they stay married to you is because you're able to hold on to them real good. Yes or no? That's not really a good marriage. God, three of you. Maybe I need to do a whole marriage thing. and Maybe there's a whole misunderstanding here. How about this? I don't know if you get it or not. But, but freedom of choice, you can see it in the youngest child there is. I, we, we've got six beautiful grandchildren, five girls, one boy. The middle one, my, my father-in-law takes them over to McDonald's, and the middle one, who is four years old, she does this to him. They're all playing in the play place. They're having a good time. Their shoes are off. And my father-in-law says to the kids, okay, kids, it's time to go. And the middle one doesn't want to go, and she's going to exercise her freedom of choice. So my father-in-law goes to her, Evie, put your shoes on. And she says, Grandpa, I don't want to put my shoes on. And he says, Evie, I told you, get your shoes on. Well, by then, several parents are paying attention to what's going on. This little four-year-old does this to my father-in-law. She says, Grandpa... If you raise your hand to me, I'll have you thrown in jail. <laughs> now, th there's two problems with this. Number one, that man has never raised his hand to that child. Number two, where does she get stuff like that? She throws him in his place. All these parents are looking at him like, go ahead and try and raise your hand and see what happens, sir. He's just like, okay. And off she goes. She plays for another 15 or 20 minutes. She exercised her free choice. And here, here's what I'm trying to say. We all have free choice. And just like that child who exercises it, here, here's the truth. The Bible says that God created every one of us with free choice. We, we were created so that we could choose to love God and be obedient to him and enjoy the relationship. But with that comes the risk that every one of us can turn away and do our own thing. And then the Bible's clear on the issue. We've all turned away and done our own thing. So I use a scripture from the Old Testament that uses simplistic words like God is love and God is truth. He is all love. And we tend to, when we talk about God, we only talk about the love side of God. But God is just as much truth. And the truth side of God has to be satisfied when we do our own thing. Now, the problem with us doing our own thing is that we tend to view our own thing as not as bad as someone else's own thing. And in ways in this world, I get it. A lie is not as bad as murder. Uh, speeding is not as bad as stealing. I, I get that. But here's the problem. If God is perfect and his standard of holiness is perfect... How many times do you have to blow it to not be perfect? How many of you have blown it at least this many times? Today, in that parking lot, that ice skating rink. I pulled in this morning, and here's how, here's how cold it was. The poor guy that's putting sand on the parking lot, he's got a truck with a spreader on it. It was so cold, the sand mixture was frozen. And the poor guy's out there hammering on it with a hammer, trying to get it to loosen up. And because of that, they had scraped the parking lot, but you couldn't tell where the lines were. 
So I pull in and I got here early. I couldn't tell where the lines were. I parked where I thought the lines were. And not five minutes later, I walk in, I'm sitting down here in church and someone comes in and does this. Nice parking job, pastor. <laughs> well, that didn't hit me the right way. I would have loved to have gone, well, bless you, brother. Instead, I'm like, it's not my fault. It was the jerk that parked next to me who made me park that way right there. It's it, little things like that. So we laugh about it. And I get, we don't weigh things the same. This, this, in our mind, this is far worse than this. But here's the problem. God's level of perfection is just that. It's perfect so that any sin misses the mark. In his mind, when it comes to perfection, a lie is a murder because it all has to be satisfied when it comes to truth and justice and righteousness. Let me let you read it for yourself. I put it in your notes right here. And under the intro point, I, I put down this thought. Vision gives purpose to pain. Let me explain the difference. Have you ever gone through something in your life where you didn't understand why it was happening, so it only left you confused? When you understand why something is happening, vision gives purpose to the reason something is happening. What I want to do is give purpose to the pain that Jesus went through on our behalf today. So I write right after that, look at it, it's pretty simple. Why did Jesus have to suffer? Well, I can give you two reasons and I'd like you to help me figure it out. The first one I wrote, it paid the debt for our sin. It satisfied the legality of what we did wrong. In layman's terms or in legal terms, it would work this way. When God created the earth, he put man in charge of it. And in effect, he gave us the keys to the kingdom. He told man, here's the earth, take care of it. He even used the word to rule over the earth. The enemy comes along, he tempts man. When man listens to the enemy, here's what man did in effect. He handed the keys over to the devil. And the earth and man became slaves of the enemy. When Jesus came back to the earth in order to legally take care of the debt that the devil held on to, death was necessary to pay the price. You and I could not pay our own price because if we died, that's all there is. So God took care of it through Jesus. And I'll show that to you here that after Jesus died, he gave us back the keys to the kingdom saying, never give it to the enemy again. But here's the truth of the matter, and I want you to read it for yourself. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Find it in your notes, if you will. If you got it, say yes. Okay, on the count of three, we're going to read it out loud together. One, two, three. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of God is eternal life, but the wages of sin, and notice here, it doesn't delegate which sins. It uses one term, the wage of sin. I asked the question this morning, how many of you have sinned? Then the wage of that sin was simple. It was death. Now, I know some of you are like, well, why would it be that serious? Because God is perfect. And in his presence is no sin. So the standard that God sets, the perfection that he sets is holiness, which is there is no blowing it. But how many people in this room have blown it? Every one of us. So how in the world are we ever going to make it? The wages of sin are death. Have you ever been asked this question? What's the difference between what you believe and every other religion on the earth? You ever heard that? If I were you, here's the answer that I would give to people. Every other religion on the earth is man's attempt to reach out and to please God. Every one of them describes how we approach God and how we can become pleasing to God and how God accepts us. But here's what God offers us through Jesus. Not a religion, he offers us a relationship. Jesus is God's attempt to reach down and to help man, not man's attempt to reach up and get a hold of God. 
our ability to pay for our sin would result in this. If the wages of sin is death and we paid our own sin, what's left? Nothing, only our death. That doesn't satisfy God's love. It satisfies his truth, but not his love because you were created to be in relationship with him. So God devised the plan on his own. I will send myself and I will come in the form of a man and I will live a perfect life. He was all God, but he was all man. And the Bible says that he suffered all temptation just like we did, yet was found without sin. So here's what God did. He poured out the wrath of his righteousness and his truth that sin needed to be satisfied on Jesus. But when Jesus died, God also judged him not guilty because there was no sin found in Christ. So he raised him from the dead. It accomplished both things. Legally, it paid the price for our sin, but it allowed Jesus to be alive so that we're all together in God's plan. Does that make sense? What a plan. Now, let me just answer the second part of the question. Why did Jesus have to suffer? First, because it solved the legality issue. It paid the debt for our sin. Here's the second one, and I think this is the good news. He suffered so that you and I don't have to. Yes or no, that's good news. You and I don't have to. Now, Colossians chapter 1, 19 and 22, I'm going to tell you something. This, in my mind, encapsulates God's plan, his purpose, the way he thinks, the way he feels about us. When he looks at us, this is how God feels about you. And I want you to see this in Colossians 1, 19 through 22. It says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. And through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on the earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his what? That was shed on the cross. Look at verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you. Here's how God sees you. To present you holy in his sight. Look at me. When God sees you, you want to know what he sees? He sees holiness. God doesn't see all your mistakes. God doesn't see all your shortcomings. God doesn't see all the things that you said that you wish you could take back. God doesn't see all the things that you did yesterday that you wish like, God, if there was any way to cover that up, I would. When God sees you, he sees holiness because all of the stuff you did wrong, he put on Jesus and he gave you all the right stuff that Jesus did. That's a good deal. Now, if, listen, listen, if it's true that when God sees you, all he sees is holiness, why is it that when we pray, the first thing we think about is all the stuff we've done wrong? Why do we spend so much time talking about all of our mistakes? Why do we try? You know what? Many prayers that believers pray sound like a lawyer trying to convince a judge to see the argument their way, doesn't it? <laughs> what, if, what if we really believed that God felt about us the way he says he feels about us, what if we began our prayers thinking, God likes me. God is for me. God doesn't see what's wrong with me. God sees what's right with me. Amen. Wouldn't your, would it change the way you pray? Would it change how much faith you have when you pray? Would it change the way you live your life? I mean, I'm thinking if we really got it, it would change everything. Let me finish the verse, okay? I'll read it to you one more time, verse 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. Look at this, without blemish and free from what? Who's the one who accuses you? The devil, and I'm going to tell you one other person accuses you. Does your mind ever accuse you? Back up one verse. Look at verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your, where? In your minds. Here's what that means. God is not your enemy. God, through Jesus, 
has taken care of every sin you committed. Listen, do you believe that Jesus took care of every sin you did yesterday? Now, look at me. I want full agreement this morning. Did Jesus take care of every sin you did yesterday? Did he take care of every sin you did today? And has he taken care of every sin you're going to commit tomorrow? Do you believe that? If you don't believe that, then Jesus has to come back to die for those sins, doesn't he? And here's what Hebrews chapter 9 says. Jesus presented his blood to the Father. The Father accepted it once and for all, for all sin, for all mankind. Jesus took care of all sin. Listen, when God looks at you, he does not see your sin. What remains is to be reconciled to him. That's why some people don't make it to heaven. It's not the sin issue. It's that they're not reconciled to the Father. Follow me on this. This becomes important. Because some of you, if you're a legalist, your, your, your whole life is about sin. You don't feel like you've been to church unless the preacher beats the... If you don't go home feeling bad, it wasn't good. You think I'm lying. The true, here's the good news. Jesus has taken care of all sin... And if he's taking care of all sin, then the only thing that remains is to be reconciled to God. Now, how many of you are married? I'll explain it to you this way. You'll see this real quickly. Okay. If your spouse hurts your feelings, and I know that doesn't happen often. <laughs> in fact, in this service, probably never. But let's just assume that one of you is married to somebody that's selfish. Somebody that does things their own way. You know, my daughter, I, I, took, I took my middle daughter out to dinner the other night. She's the one that just got married. And, and she said, Dad, I want to read a quote to you. She said, this is from Martin Luther, the one that lived in the 1500s that started the Lutheran church. Here's what Martin, Lu Martin Luther said about marriage. Marriage is not for your happiness. Marriage is for your holiness. And my daughter said, it is so true. She said, because I didn't realize how selfish I was until I got married. Yes or no? It's true, isn't it? You get married and you learn real quickly whether or not you're selfish. Why? What are you, afraid? Like the men in the room are like. It's like an eye. Some of you are praying, Jesus, help me preach really hard right now. Preach, preach, preach. Preach about selfishness. Go, 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 go. Oh, so good. She's finally going to get the message. Yep. Here's, listen to me. So, all right. So you're married to somebody and they offend you. Here, here's my question. See if this works this way. Do you have to wait till they admit it or wait till they say, I'm sorry, before you can forgive them? Is that a trick question? <laughs> folks, folks, talk to me. I am your pastor. I am trying, but I want you to talk to me. You're acting like this is a monologue, and I want it to be a dialogue. Talk to me right now. My name's John. I'm your pastor. I'm here to help you. <laughs> talk to me. If your spouse offends you, and they don't say, I'm sorry, or I was wrong, do you have to wait till they admit it before you forgive them? You can forgive somebody anytime you want to, right? You know what that does? That puts you in control, doesn't it? Now you're not, you're not bound by what they did. You're able to forgive them. Okay, forgiveness is a one-party issue. But reconciliation is a two-party issue. Because if what they did was really offensive, can you be reconciled to the party if they don't say what I did was wrong? No way. Here's what separates us from God. God has chosen through Jesus to forgive all all of our sin. Do you agree with that or not? It doesn't take effect once you admit to him, I'm a sinner. What takes effect when you admit to God, I need your help and I need you to forgive me is reconciliation. The only thing that's left, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, God has made everything new and it 
was his work that he did it through by using Jesus. And the only thing left is to be reconciled to God. Therefore, he's given all of us believers the ministry of reconciliation, whereby we persuade people, be reconciled. We're not supposed to go out and talk about their sin. We're supposed to tell them that God has forgiven them of their sin and they can have a relationship with him. And so many of us are so focused on other people's sin, we think it's the 12th spiritual gift to be able to sniff out somebody else's sin. And I'm going to tell you something. You do not have a gift to sniff out somebody else's sin. You need to take care of yourself first and then worry about somebody else. We're to be reconciled to God. Now, 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 under the transition point, if you, if you go, okay, I get that. Why did Jesus have to suffer? All right, it satisfies the legality. God is love, but God is truth. God is merciful, but God is also righteous. It satisfies the legality of it. If, if you get that Jesus suffered so that you and I don't have to, then maybe you sit there and you ask the question, okay, I get that, now what? Well, let me give you three things I want you to get out of this message that I think are critical, and if you get them, it might change the way you enjoy your relationship with God today. The first one would be this. I want to explain to you the difference between enjoying your relationship versus earning your relationship. Now, one of my favorite movies, it doesn't have to be yours, and in fact, I am not recommending that you gather your children around the television set and watch this movie tonight. In fact, if you do that, you will probably fire me next weekend. I like the movie Saving Private Ryan. Now, I know some of you are like, hey, I don't like it. It's, it's just too real for me. That's why I like it. Let me give you the three things about the movie I like. Number one, I think it speaks to some of the better things and the better qualities about Americans. Number two, I, I think it tells the truth about war. That war, Hollywood tends to glorify war. War is an ugly thing, yes or no? It is necessary at times. It has to be taken care of at times. I get that. Do not get me wrong on the issue of it. But war in and of itself, it's a horror. It maims people. People lose their loved ones. It's a horrible thing. And, and there was a, 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 a question that was asked of World War II veterans, which, which in my mind, my opinion about Saving Private Ryan, whether I think it's accurate or not, has absolutely, I wasn't born in the 40s. So I don't know. I didn't fight in that battle. But they asked some World War II veterans about the movie. Here's what they said. It comes as close to the reality of what the war was like as anything that Hollywood's ever produced. The third thing that I like about the movie is that it gives me a terrific example I can bring you today. And I think, I think that if you catch this, it can help you to understand the difference between the way the world thinks and the way that God thinks. And let me, let me say it this way. Would you agree with me that the way the world thinks and the way that God thinks are two different things? Would you agree with this? that the way the world thinks and the way that God thinks are diametrically opposed to each other. You know, the Bible says his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. Here's the carnal mind, the Bible says, can't even think the thoughts that God thinks. That's why your brain has to be renewed in order to understand the things that I'm even talking about right now. You know, some of you are sitting here and you're listening and it sounds like that Charlie Brown, wah, 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 and you don't get it. And I'm going to tell you why you don't get it. It's not because I'm not a good teacher. <laughs> Thank you, one person. <laughs> Sir, wherever you are, God bless you. Where are you? Raise your hand for me. I pray a special anointing on you. Here's what I pray. I pray you open your trunk and you find money all over it. I pray that your wife loves you. I pray your children serve God. I pray you live a long time on this earth. And I pray that other people hear what I'm saying to you and go, I should have said amen at that time too. <laughs> That's what I pray. If you don't get it, it's not because you're a bad listener. If you don't get it, it's because your mind doesn't comprehend the things of the Spirit. Let me ask you this question. Can you be born again and not have a renewed mind? Very important question. Yes, you can. Because in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul is writing to the church in Rome. 
And he says to a bunch of believers, have your minds renewed. It's possible to be born again and not have a renewed mind. Now I want to show you this illustration to teach you the difference between the way the world thinks and the way that God thinks. In this particular case, here's what makes this hard. The way the world thinks in this particular case is very noble and it seems very right. The problem is it's diametrically opposed to what scripture teaches us about how to think. So roll this and you guys watch this right here. They're tank busters, sir, P-51s. Angels on our shoulders. What, sir? with you, I, I wasn't sure how I'd feel coming back here. Every day, I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I earned what all of you have done for me. James? Captain John H. Miller. It's a very touching part of the movie. Let me just set it up if you haven't seen the movie. It's based on a true story, and there were four Ryan brothers. Three of them were killed in action, and the mother received from the government the telegram that all three had died on the same day. So when the War Department found out that there was a fourth one, they decided for two reasons. Propaganda, it would, it would be a wonderful thing to be able to present to the American people, and that this woman has suffered enough that we need to get this boy out of battle and we need to send him back home. So they, they take a battalion of men and they send them way into German lines to rescue this young man and it costs the battalion of men, every one of them, it costs them their lives. And what that captain says on the bridge is, earn this, earn it. And later on when he's at Normandy, France and he's an old man, he's speaking to that captain, and he says to him, I have tried to live a life that's honorable and upright, and I've tried to earn this. And he asks his wife, tell me that I've earned this. And we look at that, and here's what I want to say to you. In this world, there's not a better thing that you can do for somebody else than to pay it forward. Would you agree? But then here becomes the very diametrically opposed issue of the Scripture. Jesus gave his life for you way behind enemy lines. But the father never says, earn it. He says, enjoy it. And therein lays the difference between a legalist and a believer. A legalist gets the message of what Jesus did, and every day he's out trying to prove, I'm a good person. I live a good life. I don't eat certain things, I don't drink certain things, I don't go certain places, I don't say certain words, I don't act certain ways, and therefore, God, tell me, I've lived a good life. And I'm going to tell you, here's the problem with that. Every time you try to earn it, 
it pushes you a little further from the grace that God provides for you. Because God never says, pay it back. God says, paid in full. God never says, I need you to live up to what I've done for you. God says, I need you to enjoy fully the life that I came to bring you. Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, I came to bring life, and not just any life, but a life that's worth having. And any believer, let me, let me ask you this question. Why are churches so full of believers who are so unhappy in their relationship with God? It's because they're trying to earn his approval rather than living with his approval. All of their prayers are based on trying to get God to smile at them rather than live, living like God's already smiled at them. All of their life is based on trying to get God to approve, and they don't understand. God has already said to you, I fully approve of you. I even had somebody recently that I respect say this to me. Here's the problem when we sin. It separates us from God. That's a lie. Nothing separates you from God. I'll prove it to you. Look at the second point that I want to make out of this. God will never turn his back on you. In Mark chapter 15, verse 34, the last act of Jesus in the flesh on the earth, we find right here. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That's Aramaic, which is the language Jesus spoke. Here's what it means. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what I wrote in my margin of my Bible, and I copied it onto a notepad here. The wording here in Mark 15, 34, makes me believe Jesus is actually surprised and almost incredulous that God has forsaken him. Remember, he prayed, if there's any way for you to remove this cup from me, do it. But not my will, but your will be done. Listen to this. I believe that God was fully man and fully God. That's the mystery of who Jesus was. The God part knew what he had to do. But the man part, when he realized what was in front of him, he asked the father, if there's any other way, take this away, yes or no. When Jesus is on the cross and the full weight of the sin of the world is laid upon him, the Bible says that Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The word forsaken in the Hebrew, here's what it means. I put it in your notes. To abandon, to desert, to leave in desperate straits, to leave behind, to reject, or to turn away from. Here's what happened to Jesus. When the full weight of God's wrath and the sin of the world is put upon Christ, the Father turned his back on the Son because that's what righteousness is required to do with sin. And Jesus, not one day in his life, listen, ever experienced being separated from his father. That's why he knew when the father separated from him. Now, here's the point. Jesus went through everything he went through so that you never have to go through any of it. Here's why I say to you, your sin can't separate you from God because Jesus already paid the price and was separated from God so that now you never have to be separated from God. So that even when you sin, the Father doesn't see your sin, he sees his Son. Amen. My God in heaven, if that doesn't help you, nothing will. You're not getting it if you don't get it. God, that's deep theology right there. <laughs> How do I say this? He went through it so that you and I never have to. That, look, it does dishonor to the Father if you are not enjoying the relationship that the Son provides for you. You're trying to add on to the work of Jesus by earning it, and I'm going to tell you the truth. You are dishonoring the work of Christ if you do anything except enjoy it. Churches should be the happiest place on earth because the message we have is not you're full of sin and you're wrong and you're rejected and you need to get your life right. Here's the message we have. Jesus did everything to make you right before the Father and if you want it this morning, the Father will embrace you and love you. Amen. Who rejects that? 
only someone who doesn't understand God is not offering you the opportunity to be good. He's not offering to you the opportunity to get religion. God's not offering you the opportunity to change your life or straighten up. Here's what he's offering to you. If you want heaven, if you want relationship, if you want mercy, I'll give it to you. Why would you say no? Something's got to be wrong with you. I put in my notes this idea right here. See if this makes any sense to you. I, last night, my, one of my twins was here. And he's getting ready to leave to go to Youth with a Mission. I, I use this as an example. That boy, he's done stuff in his life. I haven't approved of everything he's done. Any of you have a child you've approved of everything they've done? You know, in fact, there have been things that he's done that I haven't approved of. But here's, here's my point. Ultimately, my DNA is in my child. No matter what he does, he will never not be a leech. Yes or no? If you're born again, you can never not be born again. If you're a child of God, he never kicks you out of the family. Do you get that? See, some of you, I, you, your minds are telling you, that's, but pastor, what about this? And what, there, here's the, la, all right, like, I got five minutes and I got to get this done. Let me go to three. Let me go to three. The last thing that I want you to get is you've got to get a renewed mind. If you're sitting there and you go, why don't I think that way? Why is it I don't understand it that way or I don't get it that way or I don't think that way? Because you need a renewed mind. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Find it in your notes. I want you to read it with me. Let's count to three. One, two, three. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Is God's will good, pleasing, and perfect? Then why, when you think about God, would you think it's anything else except good, pleasing, and perfect? Here's why. Your mind isn't renewed. It goes right back up to Colossians 1, verse 20. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds. Your mind has to be changed in order to know that God's will for your life is good, pleasing, and perfect. But what about the sin? Jesus died on a cross for your sin. God fully poured out his wrath on Jesus for your sin. But pastor, it can't be that easy. That's the deal. That's why the only way to appreciate what God's done for you is to enjoy the life, not earn the life. Now, let me, let me wrap it up this way. Here's how I know that I know that I know what I'm talking about. I was raised a legalist. I was raised in a legalist church that taught the law. And as soon as I was born again, they gave you a list. Now, I don't mean they handed you a list, but they began to let you know there are certain things you do and you don't do if you're a Christian. And here's the funny thing. It doesn't matter what church you go to, they all have the same list, yes or no. You ever got that list? Here, here was how it worked. You can drink this, but you can't drink that. You can see this movie, but you can't see that movie. You can go to this place, but you can't go to that place. You can wear these clothes, but you can't wear those clothes. In fact, we were so holy that the women had to wear their hair a particular way. They had to dress in dresses. They couldn't wear pants. I mean, we were holy. And anybody that wasn't like us wasn't holy. So we were very judgmental. We were very small, too. Because here's the truth. Only a few people make it to heaven. Because didn't Jesus say, narrow is the way? And few who find it? Doesn't that mean that only a few people make it into heaven? I knew the law really well. 
But the more I tried to keep the law, the more miserable I became in my relationship with God. Here was the litmus test. I did not enjoy serving God. I went then to a Bible college that taught the law. Now I became a theologian in teaching the law so that I could out-argue. I could make the Bible say anything I needed it to say to back up my point on the law. I think back to when I first got into ministry and the stuff, Josh, that I put on people. And if I could go back 26 and 27 years, I would change almost everything that I taught. Do you know that? The mercy of God got a hold of me, and here's what happened. I worked for three churches that were all very legalistic, and because they were so legalistic, they imploded on themselves. They ended up, here's what Paul says, when you judge each other, you end up biting and devouring each other, and the churches imploded on themselves. I got invited to try out for a youth pastor's position 20 years ago at a church in northern Colorado, and it was a church that taught grace and mercy. All of my friends warned me, if you leave this denomination, you won't make it into heaven. They all told me that. You, 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 will, you were going apostate, but something in me was leading me to something. I just knew I wasn't happy. You remember that, baby? So I called the pastor, and this is what I said. I said, listen, every church I've ever interviewed at, they pay for it, and I have to do what they want me to do. I have to go to all of their meetings, and I have to dress a certain way, and I have to go to all their... I said, if I pay for it, you don't have to pay. If I pay for it, can I just come and do what I want to at your church? The guy goes, if it's on your dime, do what you want to do. So I paid for it, and all we did was go and sit in services, and no one knew we were there. And here's what I noticed. All of the people were having a good time and it made me mad. <laughs> now, I want you to listen to me. They were having fun. They were laughing. They were enjoying church. They were loud and raucous and making noise. The church I went to, if you clapped, it would kill three old women. <laughs> now, you think I'm kidding you. Boris Karloff was the pastor. We had an organ. Doo-doo, doo-doo, doo-doo. He would speak, dust would come out of his mouth. I mean, I go to this church and they're having such a good time. I'm, I'm wearing a suit and a tie and they're all dressed like you. They're having fun and I'm all proper. There's a scripture in the Old Testament that says, when you go to the Lord's house, go dressed in your finest linen. So I dressed in the finest linen. And I'm looking at all these people, and they're just, they don't, they don't even think that God cares how they dress. And I'm like, God, these people have so much to be taught. <laughs> they have so much. I can help this church so much. So I tell the pastor, you know, the only word I had for his church is I said, there's a lot of life in your church. That's the only thing. I, I said, there's a lot of life in your church. I want to come to your church. You know what the pastor told me? He said, absolutely not. You don't fit here. It broke my heart. But God intervened. His wife liked me, so she talked him into hiring me. He taught here three weeks ago. His name's John Stocker. Do you remember him? It's my pastor. I was there a month or two. Every staff meeting I would go to, man, they would have such a good time. Their understanding with God, they enjoyed their relationship with him. None of them felt condemned. None of them felt guilty. None of them prayed like God was mad at them. And I, I, I mean, they're all on this side of the room, and I'm on this side of the room. And I was so afraid to go to that side of the room because I thought, I'll end up going to hell if I go over to that side of the room. I'll be apostate. I'll, I'll leave behind all the, I thought I was the defender of the faith. You know, Elijah one time told God, I'm the only one that's left. You know what God told Elijah? I have 5,000 people you don't even know about. <laughs> I felt like I'm the only one that's left. God was so merciful to me. And I kept telling these people, here's what I told them. I told the staff, you can't do that. And they said, why? I said, I don't know, but you just can't do that. 
You're not supposed to do that. They didn't let me stop them. We went up to a retreat. I'd been there about three months, and we went up to this retreat. And the speaker was a man named Malcolm Smith, who is probably the foremost teacher on grace in America today. He's actually a, he's a, 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 an Anglican priest. You know, high church, where's the pointy hat? The whole thing. But he gets grace. So this guy comes to teach at this church, at this men's advance I'm at. And I sit and I listen to him for about two or three hours and everything he taught out of the Bible, it just made me so mad. I just am like, oh, it can't. Oh, he taught everything I taught you today. And I got so mad, I got up, and I decided I was going to quit. So I went to my room. I packed all my stuff. I threw it in my Honda. I was at the YMCA of the Rockies in Estes Park. I drove down to the bottom. There's a, there's a beaver pond right at the bottom before you leave the grounds. And I was driving super fast. It was right in the end of winter. Not everything was thawed yet. You know, the beginning of spring, just right at that time. I got to the bottom. I grabbed the emergency brake and I pulled it up. And the car slid side. I was so mad. I got out of my car and I told God, again, again, I'm going to lose another job again. I said, I can't believe you did this to me. And I pick up a big rock and I throw it through the ice. Boom. I said, why did you bring me to a church that's so off? Boom. I said, God, why is it these people don't get what it means to serve you? Boom. God, why am I the only one? And everything was about me in my conversation. And when my arm finally got tired, <laughs> listen to this, and I finally ran out of breath, I just stood there looking at this. I had five small children. I had no place to go but I was going to quit to prove a point to these guys. And this is what the Lord said to me. He said, you are at a crossroads in your life and you have two choices. He said, you think you know me well, but you only know one facet of my character and that you don't understand very well, John. Holiness. He said, so you can get in your car and you can drive back up the hill. And you can go back in that meeting and you can humble yourself and you can learn what I have for you. Or you can get in your car and drive down the hill and keep doing things your way. But he asked me this question, are you happy? What a question. Are you happy? And I said to the Lord, no. I am not happy. And this is what God said to me. Part of the reason Jesus died for you, John, was so that you would have an abundant life and be happy. I got back in my car and I drove up that hill. No one even knew I was gone. <laughs> I went back into that room. I sat down. Every legalist in this room, I want you to hear me right now. I mean no offense to you. I mean, I, I am a pastor. Here's the deal. If you get up and leave me right now, you have the full right to do so. Your choice. You were created with free choice. But I want you to hear what I have to say before you go. I had to spend three years unlearning legalism before I could learn grace. Jesus told this to the disciples. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. What was the leaven of the Pharisees? It was legalism. It was keeping the law. Here's the problem with, with, with any legalism. It only takes that much legalism in your head to work its way all the way through your brain. And grace gets pushed out and legalism becomes the thing that you know. Now listen to this. This is really important. If you embrace this message, renewing your mind has to happen every day. You don't get born again, get a brand new mind, and then it's good to go from there. Every day, you've got to connect with God because if you don't, listen, whoever you're spending more time with is going to control the leaven in your brain. If the world gets all your time, the world will get its leaven in your head. If God gets your time, 
God will get his leaven in your head. You get to choose which one you want. Do you hear me? I don't teach this. Ask yourself this question. Why am I teaching this message? Because I'm trying to trick you and I want you to go to hell? <laughs> right? That's it. How about this? I'm not an evangelist. I'm not a guest speaker. I'm the pastor who started this church. I will be here next weekend. And everything I'm saying right now, I've got to work through everything that I'm teaching, don't I? So ask yourself who I teach this message for. I claim, no matter what your background is, I stand up here right now to teach you that God loves you, that God cares for you, that when God thinks about you, he thinks good things, not negative things. Why is it we can't believe that God sees what's right with us rather than what's wrong with us? And if you have children in this church, this is really important. You need to thank God they're in a church that teaches grace every day. I raised two families. Listen to me. My daughter, my oldest daughter, and I just talked about this. I've got an almost 30-year-old and a 28-year-old, and I raised them on legalism, and they battle approval all the time. That's what legalism does for you. It makes you try to get approval. I've got three others who were raised under grace. They never battle approval. In fact, just the opposite. In their mind, they're God's favorite. <laughs> they think, God likes me more than he likes anybody else. What a thought to have, man. What a thought to have. I come to the end of this, each message has been different. Each one has gone a little different direction. Each one has almost been tailor-made for the crowd that's heard it. What do I want you to do? After hearing a message like this, wouldn't it be just like the devil that I tell you that God approves of you and then I send you to go do something so that you can enjoy his approval? You know what I want you to do? When our worship team comes to play right now, before you go take communion, before you go to the cross, before you use a chalkboard to tell God what you're grateful for, before you use a candle, before you pray, how about this? Why don't you just worship God right now and ask him to renew your mind? Why don't you ask him and tell him, I want to think the thoughts that you think. You can't afford to have a thought in your head that God doesn't have in his. It's too expensive. It's too expensive. Did you hear me? I guess I did say this to every other service, and I'll say it to you, because in my mind, this makes so much sense. Transformed people transform churches. Transformed churches transform cities. Transform cities transform states. Transform states transform nations. Our nation has not a prayer until the church begins to think the way God wants it to think because we have nothing to offer the world any different than the way they think if we think just like them. Did you hear me? This is critical. Of everything I've taught, it may be the most important message I could give you. This is how God thinks about you. Why would you think any other way? Why would you think any other way? Amen. Father, seal this message right now. The Bible says that the devil comes immediately to steal away. Folks, listen. Keep your eyes closed, but just listen. Jesus taught the devil comes immediately to steal the seed that's been preached. Here's why he does it. If you don't take this as your own, if you don't say that's mine, that belongs to me, and I want that in my life, then the devil has the right to come and steal it. You'll have the memory of me teaching it, but you'll have no fruit in your life as evidence that the message took root. Rhetorically, you don't need to raise your hand. You don't need to say anything out loud. Rhetorically, I ask you this question. Do you want the fruit of this message in your life? Then right now, see yourself take hold of this seed and tell the Lord, that's mine. 
that word belongs to me. I want this as fruit in my life. I want to think the way you think. I invite you to renew my mind. Transform me. Invite him to do it. And then I'm going to encourage you that when you go to pray, begin your prayers automatically knowing that God's will for you is good, pleasing, and perfect. And that when God sees you, he sees holiness. He sees peace. He sees the work of Jesus. It's not hiding what you did. It's taking the place of what you did. God offers to you today freedom and peace and enjoyment. And I invite you as you just soak in what he has for you, just soak in it. I invite you today to enjoy your life, to enjoy your relationship with God, to not go back to the old way, to not fall back into the old, the old pattern of thinking, but to be fully renewed in your mind. And I pray that in Jesus' name over your life. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and stand to your feet. And as our worship pastors just pray, you worship. Chris and I are going to go ahead and boogie out of here. It's been a lot of services for us. So let's go, baby.